Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a licensed clinical social worker and how to ace the exam, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is an independently licensed clinical social worker and former psychotherapist who's logged years in the field and now coaches aspiring social workers to prepare for their exams. But before I introduce you to Shara Ruffin, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features job-seeking insights and advice into dozens of industries from the professionals like Shara who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my cold brew loving, aspiring clinical social workers, that is a mouthful. Please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Shara Ruffin, the founder of Journey to Licensure, a coaching company that helps social workers become licensed in record time through holistic wellness coaching, professional development, and mentoring to pass their master's and clinical level exams. Shara is also an independently licensed clinical social worker and former psychotherapist who specializes in grief, personality disorders, family trauma, compassion fatigue, military counseling, mindfulness meditation, ADHD, and anxiety. Shara is a five-time Amazon best-selling author whose books include 90 Days of Prayer, A Journal for Social Workers, and 90 Days of Inspiration, that's a study companion for social workers taking their licensing exam. And finally, Shara is also the host of a new podcast called journey to licensure. And she is a LinkedIn advisor and was most recently awarded top 15 LinkedIn experts in Philadelphia in 2023. You are definitely going to want to give her a follow on LinkedIn. Shara, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Oh, I am caffeinated and ready to go. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I feel like I have known you for so long, (laughs) Shara. We've been following one another on LinkedIn for like two and a half years. Yeah, quite a while. It goes fast, almost three. (laughs) Oh my God, I can't believe it. And I'm such a fan of the work that you do and the mission that you have with your 
journey to licensure business? Thank you. It's been quite a road and it's like a freight train comes in fast. So yeah, I'm I'm very excited about where it's going. It's been pretty worse kind of scaling at this point. My problem right now, there's only one me. It's a lot more to serve. So I'm at that point now that I'm getting ready to build a team and scale because of the amount of clients that I get. So it's it's been an amazing journey. When I first started, I never thought I would turn it into a business. I thought I would go into private practice. And here I am almost three years later and over 300 social workers later. I, this I- is where I'm at. I can't believe I'm saying this, but in the five years of hosting time for coffee, Mm -hmm. you, Shara Ruffin, are the very first social worker, licensed or otherwise, that I've had the pleasure to interview. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for making the time to help all of our young listeners learn more about this incredibly important and very demanding profession. Very. Before we get into your journey, backing it way up to licensure, and then your journey as Mm -hmm. a social worker to where you are today, I thought maybe we could kick things off, Shara, with a bit of an overview of what a social worker actually does and how a social worker is different from a licensed social worker. Sure. So I'll kind of just give a brief overview of social work just as a profession. So the primary mission of the profession is to enhance human well-being. And basically, I always call that we're the backbones of society, uh, helping to meet basic and complex needs of all people with particular interest on the most vulnerable, the most oppressed and people living in poverty. So definitely for people, if you're looking for a career with meaning that having to do with action, diversity and satisfaction, you definitely want to look at social work. Now, social work is different than other professions. I always explain that compared to a psychologist that may be the helping professor, a psychiatrist, or a licensed professional counselor, because we share similarities in profession of serving others, but in what capacity, that's where it's different. So for social work, we focus more on the person and their environment. We focus on external factors that impact a person's situation, their outlook. We create an opportunity for assessment. We do a lot of intervention to help clients and communities cope with effectively their reality and to help give them empowerment as they need it. So social workers aren't just helping clients deal not only with how they feel about a situation, but also empowering them to what they can do about it. So I definitely, I I love social work. There are over 600,000 professional social workers in the U.S. right now, bachelor's, master's in clinical and doctorate level. And we work a lot beside our peers who are out there in the field, such as nurses, doctors, politicians. We're at every level, going from micro directly serving families and children in communities to working on a macro level, which we're working more with organizations and government entities and foundations that are directly impacting people, as well as working on a more national level. So there's so many things that you can do in social work. It's not just working in child welfare, which is what people are mostly know us for, but you can find us in almost every facet of society. So what is the difference between being a regular social worker and then being a licensed social worker? Is it just like the salary or is there actually a difference in job responsibilities? Well, the difference is mostly having to do with 
the licensing portion. So a social worker without their license, they just have their bachelor's or their master's degree. But when they get licensed after passing through a regulatory board, passing a national exam, they're able to increase their salary. They're able to have more mobility in their career projection. They're also offered a lot more opportunities. If you're just at the bachelor or master level, especially income-wise, you're only able to go but so far. So the whole point of getting a license, most people always go for the motivation of, I have to get this license, I have to make more money. Well, that's a small piece of it. The bigger projection is, depending on what degree level you're at, you can progress to not only have more mobility, but to have freedom. Because once you get to the clinical level of licensure, or you're actually eligible to be an LCSW, like I am, or ICSW in some states, that is the top unrestricted license in the country. Once you get that, you're able to do private practice. You're able to open up your own entity or profession, just like I have. And you're able to have a lot more freedom and you're no longer under clinical supervision to provide care. There's a lot more professional freedom in that aspect of the licensure. So the, the painful, rigorous... <laughs> process that we go through, there's a moment to the manager, you're like, why am I doing this? And it's because of that progression piece that we want to have mobility in our career. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. So in preparation for our interview, Shara, I did a little Googling and yeah. our listeners may be interested to learn that the job outlook for licensed clinical social workers, the LCSW that you just alluded to there yes. is looking really good. The Bureau mm-hmm. of Labor Statistics expects employment of healthcare social workers to increase by 17% between mm-hmm. 2018 and 2028. So like another five years from now, which is great. So based on what I've read on your LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. your journey into social work, began as an undergrad at Lock Haven University of Pennsylvania, where you majored in social work. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated, Shara? I I did. I knew I wanted to go into being a therapist. Originally, I have to say that I was a psychology major before social work. And I end up switching after I talked to my advisor at the time. He said, I think you would probably be better off in, in social work. And at the time, I had just the same thing as everyone else, that social workers just do child welfare. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. He said, no, if you want to do therapy, you can do it a lot faster unless you really want to get a PsyD or, or you want to teach. And I was like, no. So I went that route after my first intro to social work class. I fell in love with the profession in whole. Went straight to grad school right after college, didn't stop there and got a master's at 24. So I went straight through. So So going back to what you thought and what a lot of people may be still thinking that social Mm -hmm. worker is just about child welfare, what does it cover? What are the wide ranging potentials that you could focus on? The social worker is definitely changing over time, traditional roles such as being a case manager, such as working in the government or even being a politician, being a social worker and taking those skills, they're transferable and very much marketable. If I have to think about what my journey was from being a case manager to well, me working in direct practice, I've always worked in direct care with people 
families and individuals. So for me personally, it was that I wanted to get more experience during therapy. Of course, coming out of school, I couldn't do that right away because I didn't have the experience. So for most social workers, if they're in direct practice, what we call micro level, they're trying to learn more about either they want to do therapy or they want to work directly in a government entity or with the VA, or they're working directly in with a community they're really passionate about. So when I say it's very vast, there's so many entities that you can go on, whether you want to do social justice or, you know, campaigning on the Hill or lobbying. So from government to this micro work is it's very vast. There's so many, so many examples, or even working in a school, working for the VA, working in nursing homes, so many different options. Some of the social workers are actually first responders dealing with natural disasters, working as executive directors of a nonprofit organization, being a community organizer, being a professor, corporate leader, member of Congress. There's so many, so many different roles. So you mentioned you went directly from undergrad into grad school. You got your Mm -hmm. master's of social work as well as clinical medical social work at Mm -hmm. Howard University. Could you help us understand then, because when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile. It had you working between like 2005 and then 2011 as Mm -hmm. a social worker doing contract work. Was that while you were in grad school and then after you graduated? Yes. Yes. I bounced around a lot the first couple of years because I wasn't directly sure about how I was going to get into therapy. At the time, I was still living in DC after I graduated from Howard for about three years. So I had a lot of fun in terms of being able to test out what I wanted to do. And it was a a good time. I think my first job out of grad school was working as an HIV case manager. I loved the experience. I learned a lot from it. And that kind of opened the door for me to do therapy when I moved back to Pennsylvania. So was that then in November of 2011? Because for about a year and a half, Mm -hmm. you well, that may have been what you were just referring to when you were still Mm -hmm. in D.C., When you Mm -hmm. were a medical case manager for the Women's Collective. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you also, I guess, in that same job, were helping to identify other sources of trauma, including sexual trauma, PTSD, homelessness, and bereavement. Can you talk a little bit, Shara, about how you uncover hidden trauma, especially from a patient who may not even be aware? that they have this trauma because it's so suppressed. Yeah. I mean, it was very, at the time from what I remember, I mean, I'm going back almost 10 years. So <laughs> when I wanted, when I did an internship, you're referring to the sexual trauma piece. I actually worked for RAIN, Rape Abuse Incest National Network. And that's where I learned more so about sexual abuse. At the time, they had a hotline that wasn't fully online yet, like it is many years later. But I was one of the interns to work on that hotline at the time. And I was able to really get entrenched with learning about sexual abuse. I became really interested in wanting to learn about a topic that was also very taboo when it came to talking about incest and the impact on women and also domestic violence, which I have a lot of personal experience with. So I I became really passionate about that. And then when I graduated, it kind of morphed into, okay, You've been working an internship. I went to working in a substance abuse center in TID Psychiatric Institute of Washington, which was another field placement I did 
where I work with substance abusers in an outpatient setting. Those populations have usually are coupled with a lot of complex trauma, depending on the patient that you're seeing. When you're gathering their psychosocial assessment, their history, you usually will uncover trauma that they either haven't dealt with or they're coming to you because they're coping with it in a way that is very, it has a negative impact on every facet of their life. And they need some help with gaining insight to learn how to navigate um, in the present. A lot of the patients that I work with, they were more so acting from a space of still being in the trauma and not in present day. So one of the most effective therapies that I learned to use was psychoanalysis, because though Freud, Sigmund Freud is the father of psychoanalysis, and he dealt with a lot of people that were dealing with trauma and also helping them to see the connection between how their present state, that they were still enacting that trauma, even though they were no longer in that time frame. And it's a longer term type of therapy to do, but I, it was truly rewarding because I could constantly see the changes that my clients would go through, even years later, uh, working in an outpatient hospital. This reminds me, Shara, I, I, of course, have never worked as a therapist, but I have been a patient of a therapist and I've had 12 years of therapy myself. I stopped a couple of years ago and I remember, I think it was 2008 when I first started seeing my therapist and I was like showing up late for my appointment, like five minutes late, no big deal. Five minutes late, five minutes late. And after a handful of times being late, he said to me, you know, Andrew, why are you not being good to yourself? And I was like, that's a really bizarre question to ask me. What do you mean not being good to myself because I'm five minutes late? And he said, well, how do you feel when you're late? Mm-hmm. And I thought about it and I was like, well, yes, uh, I, I feel a little anxious. I feel a little guilty. I feel maybe even embarrassed. My heart is racing. You know, it's like it's. Bottom line, it's not a great feeling. And what I came to recognize was that I was subconsciously putting Mm. myself into different situations, even seemingly as innocuous as just being a few minutes late, Mm -hmm. because that was a familiar feeling to Mm -hmm. me to not feel good. Yeah. And I think to a degree, we all operate sometimes in a regressed state and it can be productive, very productive, but it comes to a point where those mechanisms that we use or those defense mechanisms don't work at certain points of our life. And then we go into crisis. So it's something I've seen time and time again in therapy, but I think it's very interesting that when we learn subconsciously what we're, we're working from in terms of those behaviors, we can stop that reaction from continuing. It's hard. And, and I think (laughs) also what I came to learn is that that was just a tiny sliver of the dysfunctional behavior that Mm -hmm. I was exhibiting. And that often are, I wouldn't refer to what I experienced necessarily as trauma with a capital T, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the Painful experiences that we've gone through as children, as teenagers, and how we really need to have that third party to hold Mm -hmm. a mirror up to ourselves, to help us recognize that sometimes 
what we're attracted to as an adult, the unhealthy environments that we're drawn to, again, because they're familiar to us. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So I believe it was in August of 2013, Shara, that you became a psychotherapist with Mm -hmm. Quality Care Options, which is a joint commission certified healthcare staffing agency. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like any staffing agency, right? But it's for (laughs) healthcare professionals. In this case, in Southeastern Pennsylvania, you live in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and then in Delaware, New Jersey, and they would place you into different companies, both in short term and I'm guessing on a longer term basis. Mm -hmm. What were some of the kinds of offices or medical settings that you were posted in? And could you request a certain type of environment? You could. You could request a certain type of environment. And actually, I'm really thankful to them because they really kind of stare-headed me into where I ended up being for the next couple of years. It kind of opened up the segue for me to actually be a therapist. Before that, a lot of my roles were more, they had potential of being more therapeutic positions, but they were not a psychotherapist position. And I didn't have that much experience there, but they gave me a shot of placing me into a hospital setting at Belmont in Philadelphia, working inpatient, which was fun, but it's still... I stayed there for a couple of weeks. I was like, oh, I want I want to do more therapy work because of the hospital I was in. It was more of a setting where it's inpatient. You're not doing as much therapy. I was more of a insurance case reviewer. And then I was put into my next position with quality care options that was working at Belmont outpatient facility, which was probably the most fun. I ended up staying there from the time Jaden, I was pregnant with Jaden all the way up until kindergarten. <laughs> I stayed there quite a while. How do you deal with listening to people's problems and their traumas (laughs) all day long without letting it like affect you. You mentioned Jaden, your son, Mm -hmm. and you have two other children as well with your fiance. And Mm -hmm. how do you not bring that home? And I'm guessing that therapists, social workers, they have (laughs) challenges kind of keeping the balance between work and home. That was hard. I mean, when I worked in a hospital, I don't have as much now because most of my clients are my colleagues and they they have their own sense of trauma and their secondary trauma that I'm helping them combat compassion fatigue, which is very deadly in our profession. So I had in my early years of being in social work, I honestly had to deal with burnout, constantly having to deal with going to a therapist and really working through my own issues, what we call counter-transference when a clinician triggers from a client. So having to work through that was pretty hard, but going to get my own therapist helped kind of mitigate and separate me from being the social worker provider. So I've had many tough situations uh, working as a therapist, but what I will say that was very helpful is being able to have a support system, being able to have a supervisor being able to practice self-care, that I can say. Mm. And I know you help your clients with that as well. (laughs) Yes. So I remember, Shara, when I first became, maybe shortly after I first became aware of you on LinkedIn and were following your posts, I remember you posted, and this was like, whoo, you got 
a bazillion comments and, you know, the mm-hmm. response was overwhelming. When you posted, whether it was in the winter of 2020 or early 2021, about finally passing yeah. the big social exam. work exam, can you share what that experience was like for you? Because it took you the better part of a decade to finally pass mm-hmm. it due to various challenges and curveballs that life had thrown you. Oh, <laughs> pretty much. So I remember posting, actually, it's the first future post I actually am embedded in my future section, I believe in my profile. I, I would cons- probably consider that my first little viral LinkedIn post. It had maybe over 100,000 views or something that like was that. A little, that was a little viral. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> little viral. Assistant, I've had definitely had it quite a few, but I think what drove is that I, a lot of people into my journey, I have been on LinkedIn for five years. So when I actually stopped hiding from my little pretty post that I would do, I started doing video where I started sharing after I lost my job, had failed my exam the first time. And after telling 30,000 people on LinkedIn, I'm going to pass. And I didn't. And then I sharing what that felt like and the journey of me losing my job a week before the pandemic, having three kids to take care of at home, losing my health care, having really bad depression, panic attacks, anxiety, migraines every day for seven months. I was in a very dark spot where the world was kind of like falling apart and trying to figure out what the hell these, you know, virus was. And along with the issue that was happening with the George Floyd, that summer was pretty, pretty crazy. And in my world, all I could do is control my favorite thing to do, which was playing Animal Crossing. I'm a Nintendo gamer. I do love my games. <laughs> so I could disappear in a world where I had these little talking animals in my own little community and I could build things. I would be on that Nintendo Switch day in, day out. And it was a big thing with people that were during a pandemic to find things to connect to. Gaming was for me a connection where I could kind of escape from everything. So when I didn't have headaches, when I wasn't the one taking care of the household, that's all I did. And I did that for about seven months where I just did nothing but be video game and take care of the kids. And I think that was needed for me to pause and to go through the motions with failing the exam. And I shared that day by day experience when I was doing videos every day on LinkedIn and people responded to it. I remember telling people in the middle of the pandemic, I'm broke, I'm stuck, I'm tired, I am uh, depressed. And all you would see this shiny little profile, all this stuff on it. I'm like, no, I'm struggling. And people really responded to that. So when I passed my exam, I think the reason why I exploded as much as it did is that I took people along that journey. So when I passed, they were all like, finally, <laughs> she did it a year later. Taking people on the hero's journey, is it's not the win that people really respond to. It's the struggle. And I really shared as much as I could about what I was going through at the time. In an untraditional way on LinkedIn, and people really enjoyed watching. And even getting to know my kid at the time who was homeschooling in kindergarten, who's now about to go to the fourth grade. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it's and people watch him. They feel like they know him because he's on LinkedIn. And they're like waiting for him to get a profile. So what was it about <laughs> taking it that third time that you kind of cracked the code on it? And what advice do you have, Shara? For any of our young listeners who may not have the opportunity to work with you or to work with somebody who is an expert on taking this exam about how to prepare for it. Well, 
I took the clinical license twice. So I took it on the second time I passed. The first time I missed it by two points. And years before that, a year out of school, I was required to take my master level licensure exam. I missed it by three points the first time. Took it two years later after giving up and passed it. So I would say make sure the first advice I would give is make sure that whatever study material you pick, it matches your learning style. A lot of what I see now is people choosing. There's so many options now compared to what I had when I first started. When I was studying many years ago out of grad school, there's so many different options now. People get caught up in what's popular, not what's going to work with how they process information. That is the biggest, biggest tip that I would give. Make sure that what you pick or what you invest in, it fits what you need, not what is popular. <laughs> so that Got would it. be my first relevant advice. So not long after you passed the exam, your career took a bit of an unexpected turn. You started getting more involved with coaching. And I did. Specifically coaching on the exam. How did that happen? Well, shortly after post blew up, I was invited to get on Clubhouse. Clubhouse at the time, right, I believe January 2021 was this new big thing, right? So I got on there and I started finding different communities to connect with. Now, uh, the first thing I did was search for social workers. There was a big, big, huge social work community that had their own, they were calling them clubs at the time. Now they're houses and clubhouse, but they had like 20, 30,000 people in it. So I was like, you know, what? I'm going to be a part of the community and share with them what I just went through. And I started doing, they invited me to come in. And I would do study sessions. I would do them every Monday because I had nothing else to do. Every Monday, within the first three months, I had like six people that passed the exam. The group was very small. It went from 20 to 30 to 50 people. Now it goes from 100 to 250. I've had 300 people in that room the most at one time. I've been doing that same room every Monday for two years now. Almost three consistently. And it's something that no one has really seen before because a lot of exam prep companies started having three groups after I, they saw the success of mine. But it's unmatched in the sense that it's such a great community of people that come in that space. They may not get coached by me right away, but they get coached with tips and strategy support. And they realize that they're not alone. And within the first six months, it went from having six to 20 to 100 people passing through the licensing. I said, you know what? Maybe I'm on to something. So I had a coach friend of mine. I said, Art, what are you doing with this? I said, I'm just having fun. I'm just helping you out. He's like, I'm going to need you <laughs> to turn this into a coaching business. You have something that works for people. And it's very different than what's out there. And it's needed. I think you need to go ahead and turn it into a business. And I was like, well, I'm not sure. He's like, no, I, I need you to do that. So... <laughs> this was actually this. It came from Eric Reed, who is oh, my yeah. uh, was my publisher. So I was like, sure, like why not? So I turned it into a business officially LLC in March of 2021, and then it's been skyrocketing every ever since. It's been nonstop. This is my third year, and it's been nonstop. What is it about? the licensing exam that makes it so hard to pass? Well, there are a lot of different factors, I could say. There was actually a report that came out from ASWB, our regulatory testing board. It came out last August. There are three groups of people that struggle to pass. African-American social workers, 
social workers that have English as their second language and social workers that have been out of school for many years. Usually, typically, the people that do pass are people that take the exam close to being out of school, where the information is fresh in your mind, the longer you're out of school the more the exam questions don't make sense to you because they're not really based on work experience. They're based on book knowledge only. So having to retrain your brain to work like a student can work against you if you've been out of school longer. However, it's the way the exam is made up. There is personally, as many people have argued in my field since that report came out, it was a 10-year study that was done that there are some discrepancies. There are There's some systemic structural pieces in there that they're trying to fix and make it more culturally competent. Also, there needs to be a change in terms of being a little bit inclusive to people that have disabilities and it's not as inclusive as I would want it to be. But there's a lot of change that is going on that they're trying to make changes to by 2025. So we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I just do my best to try to help as many people as I can with what I know and what I can bring to the table for them. So. So can you talk a little bit about what you do in your coaching through Journey to Licensure? Because you you combine your clinical skills as a trained psychotherapist Mm -hmm. and also provide holistic wellness coaching along with that test strategy and the mastery of test content. Yes. So, and most of that came from my story of how I struggled. Part of the journey that I didn't talk much about is that I have generalized anxiety disorder and ADHD and a learning disorder. And I talk about that a lot in terms of when people would see me, they're like, well, you don't look like you have any of those things. And there goes the stigma. So I'm often talking about those disorders because I've had a lot of my colleagues who have dyslexia, ADHD, or different other neurocognitive or neurodevelopmental disorders that literally they don't have any type of roadmap to help them navigate the material in a structured fashion. So I took my process of what I did to pass and put my clinical skills to use in terms of helping people that have different disabilities or their learning level and tailoring to them in a very structured fashion, but also giving them support in a way that a tutor can't give. A tutor will do practice questions with you, but I'll build your process for you. We're checking in every day. I'm very accessible to them on a daily basis, unless I'm sleeping. It's getting a little bit tighter now that I have quite a caseload. However, I'm able to hold the space for them in a way that a tutor can be patient with them and allow them to go through the motions of fighting themselves. Because a lot of the exam is more so the mindset, especially if you failed before. So... If I had to think about some of the clients I've had, (laughs) they have definitely changed the tide of what it is to be resilient to pass those exams, if that kind of sums it up. But yeah, it's really just holding space for them, giving them structure, accountability. A lot of people needed that type of support. It's the type of support that I didn't get, that I had to give myself, is what I give them. I love that. Very quickly, Shark, can you talk a little bit about all the letters <laughs> that are after your name? First of all, here on the Zoom screen, but also on LinkedIn and what they stand for and what's sure. involved in getting them. Sure. <laughs> so there is, of course, my LCSW, which I, we pretty much talked a lot about. But the QCSW is Qualified Clinical Social Worker. It's basically a natural certification recognition underneath NASW 
National Association of Social Workers that recognizes me for my national contributions to clinical social work for all the work I've done throughout my career to enhance the lives of others. So that's one recognition. The other one is ACSW. It's Academic Academy of Social Work. And it's basically a leadership credential that recognizes you for your leadership skills that you have been able to demonstrate throughout the profession. So it's the oldest credential in the country underneath NASW. It was one of the first ones I believe they made in 1960s. Then there is CSWHC, which is Certified Social Worker in Healthcare, that recognizes me for my contributions to healthcare within the social work profession nationally. And then there is BCTMH, which is Board Certified Telemental Health Provider. That pretty much gives me a good range of helping people learn how to be HIPAA compliant, teach or build courses on telemental health if I wanted to, as well as support others organizations or entities that are interested in doing telemental health or training their providers. So (laughs) that's a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. Thank you so much. And we should say that the BCTMH has been available only since 2018. So just before the pandemic. And boy, has it been a valuable certification to have. So Shara, Mm -hmm. I have Three final T4C questions. These are questions I try to ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. The first one is if you've ever, whether it's met someone or had an experience that you would describe as lucky or serendipitous or divine providence or what I like to call magical in which That person or that experience changed the direction of your professional life. (laughs) Oh, I feel like I can't just name one. I've had several mentors in my career, but when it's kind of in terms of the last three years, there are quite a few I can name. Probably Eric Reed would be one. There are a couple of LinkedIn people I can't even think of right now that have been pivotal in helping me to be authentic and helping me to gather my story. LinkedIn has been the probably out of all the platforms, I can honestly say LinkedIn has been the biggest game changer for me, specifically the last three years of what I've been able to do and being recognized by the platform itself has been humbling, but also letting me know that I am connecting with real people and I made a lot of lifelong friends there. So many. I couldn't just name one. Fair enough. The other question is if you could share a time in your professional life when you failed and maybe the story you want to share is a time when you failed the licensure exam to become social worker, or it could be a time when you struggled or face planted on the job, as we all have, I'm pointing to myself, but most importantly in this story, Shara, is how you persevere and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Oh, so, I mean, yes, there, there's always the licensing exam. Both of them were 10 years apart from each other. The master level licensure was equally just as hard as the clinical many years later uh, because they shared the same content. Professionally, I would say I have to say the licensure was probably the hardest part. But 
even harder with being a mom in the last date and he'll be nine next month and having to navigate taking care of a little person, but also loving what I do and balancing that now. I've been able to try that is I have a village to raise a child and it's not just me anymore. But in the earlier years of when he was a baby, it was very hard. I was newly divorced. I was trying to rebuild my career, but I'm a fighter. I've always been a fighter. So seeking support when I needed it, crying on the shoulder when I needed it. My strength was in relying on other people to open up, to be vulnerable enough to know that I needed help. Mm. Beautiful. Final question, Shara. If you could go back to school and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Don't be so hard on yourself. That's what I would say. (laughs) In my college career, I was very type A, very, looking back, I actually have some of my old journals. I was very structured. Everything had to be color-coded in a box. Like I was... My ADHD run, ran wild and it was undiagnosed back then. But I would tell that young person that enjoy the journey. Don't be so quick to, to jump in. It's okay to, to pause and it's okay to slow down. I've always been a person to go get her. Still am, but children change that. <laughs> they definitely really make you remember about what's important sometimes more than your work itself. And to me, that's a gift now. So. That's what I would say. Um, Enjoy the journey. I don't feel like I enjoyed it enough. I was always trying to get to the next thing and the next thing. And I can say I honestly went through that all the way up until probably three years ago, three, four years ago. (laughs) Enjoy the journey. Shara is the host of the Journey to Licensure podcast. And she is the author of two best-selling books, 90 Days of Prayer, A Journal for Social Workers, and 90 Days of Inspiration, A Study Companion for Social Workers, Taking Their Licensing Exam. Shara, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. What you do is so important, and this has been such a pleasure. Thank you. I love to be here. It's a good time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Oh,